Hi, my name is Rich Nadwarney, and welcome to Innovation Explorers, Hello Future's podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. Each episode, we talk with people on the front lines of innovation and change work as they share their unique perspectives on some of the most common issues we face. This podcast is primarily for those of you working in large and mid-sized organizations want to get your change and innovation initiatives moving faster, better, and with more internal alignment. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Bracken, a global digital leader who has led wholesale transformations of large institutions in the private and public sector. In 2011, British Prime Minister David Cameron brought Mike into government from the private sector as the UK's first Executive Director of Digital and Chief Data Officer. Over five years, he created, led, and scaled the Government Digital Service, GDS. Mike talks to us about the challenges and successes of creating user-driven public digital policies and practices, and shares with us some needed advice for Sweden, who ranks last in the latest Government Digital Index. In the podcast, Mike will share with us his thoughts about the power of design principles and the structures behind them, the four phases of digital government, and how public institutions, rather than private ones, might be better at taking the risks of creating future-oriented solutions. Mike Bracken, welcome to Innovation Explorers. I'm really happy you took the time to chat with us. Ah, Rich, thanks very much for having me. Just for our listeners, uh, Mike kind of popped up on my radar. In 2013, I saw a YouTube video you did for Code for America. And since then, I've been like having these loose plans that never happen of having you like at events or talking. And, and it's taken me 10 years to finally do this. So I'm really looking forward to our chat. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. A lot's changed in those 10 years, but um, it was quite an important moment there, 2013 Code for America. So um happy to connect and can see you've got a, interested and vibrant audience. So happy to talk about anything we've done since. So Mike, I'd like to start with, uh, let's go back those 10, 12 years. You were really one of the driving forces behind what's probably the most ambitious user-centered project in dig- in public service, the, the GDS, Government Digital Services in the UK. He was charged with delivering the government's digital agenda. You launched the site gov.uk. And I'm wondering if you could take us back for a minute and tell us how this all started. Wow. Well, um, depends how far back you want to go, Rich, but let's start in the, <laughs> in the relatively recent times. Um, in the late 2000s and for 15 years previous, in the UK, like many governments around the world, there had been an era of large-scale procurement, outsourcing via procurement, large-scale delivery of uh, public services that had become synonymous with big IT approaches, big contracts given to big suppliers. And around the world, that was failing. There's research that shows that that fails on average 87% of time to to meet its needs. And the reason is quite simple, is that the thinking from the 60s and 70s that digitization or automation equal big technology was fundamentally flawed. In an internet era, People expect to receive great digital services on their phones, on their uh, devices, 
and more tailored to them and, and their expectations. And governments were way behind. In the UK, we'd had a spectacular set of failures, not least with our NHS spine system, which I think cost £12 billion, hadn't delivered anything. But we'd had widespread failures in delivery in most aspects of central public services, prisons, tax, and so on. To the point where the incoming coalition government in 2010, and coalition government's very unusual in, in the UK, recognised that something different had to be tried. And the advocate for the internet, really, was a woman called Martha Lane Fox, uh, who started lastminute.com, a British-based uh, .com um, startup that, that had gone public. And she said, you know, why don't you put some internet-era people at the centre of government? And that's what we became. And so uh, I led a group of what turned out to be five, 600 people in the centre and uh, similar groups around the country with the long-term aim of digitising public services and creating a government that was digital by default. Um, Gov.uk, which you kindly allude to, which is the brand and the, the major site through which people act as services, is simply the front end for an enormous amount of digital reforms, whether it be procurement, skills, people, commercials, um, all manner of things, technology particularly, um, because we undertook, along with a very forward-thinking minister, Francis Maud, and his efficiency group, we were part of uh, his team that undertook huge amounts of reform of public services. So, you know, he deserves a huge amount of credit for um, thinking differently politically and having the power to see it through. And there were a bunch of other advocates, Martha Lane Fox and others and the Prime Minister, who wanted a different way tried. And fortunately, I was the person that got the job to help the team deliver and and uh, I think that by necessity, GDS did some things that were just a little bit before other countries. And we set a bit of a model there. Um, I would argue today there are 340 of these digital units around the world. Um, all, not all the same. They have to be, uh, I've said from the start, every unit has to have enough context for its country uh, or its city or its region. But there are some fundamentals in place about how they work, focusing on users, delivering quickly adapting services, focus on user-centered design rather than technology provision. And this model seems to be the new normal in terms of widespread di digital delivery. Okay, well, let's let's stay on that for, for a second because that's also one of the reasons why I wanted you in this podcast. Uh, the OECD puts out the Government Digital Index, right? And it ranks countries on digital by design, data-driven public sector, government as a platform, open by default, user-driven proactiveness. The UK is second in this ranking, just behind Korea. And Sweden is dead last, which is kind of amazing because Sweden's an incredibly digitized country. And so one of the questions I have for you is, because you've said this is widespread and, and really none of these things is completely new, why did you why were you able to succeed in the UK where other countries like Sweden have not been able to kind of catch up to this? What do you think? I don't want to talk too much about Sweden. The OECD rankings are just one set of rankings. There are others, United Nations, and those rankings are useful. They often are skewed towards a particular outlook. So um where I think we what we did in the UK was, as I, said, as I mentioned, we were at the centre of government. We had powers to reform mm. 
how the very large institutions of government worked in terms of delivery. And our minister was incredibly expansive across what is a, a very siloed system. That is very, very unusual. And that's why I think we got more cut through. Mm. I think we we had a financial imperative, which helped. So we could be made substantial savings over four billion in in the life of one parliament. As part of a group who made £52 billion pounds worth of savings in that similar parliament. And we had talent, uh, real talent that we brought in from government, as well as great talent in government. We, you know, the UK, most governments have great talent, they just don't use it properly. We put those people to use. We had a great deal of focus, a very clear strategy. We were all about delivery. You know, we had a phrase, a strategy is delivery. We were relentlessly focused on delivery. I suspect the the central issue that you've touched upon without being too polite to name it is because we were not a policy-driven outfit. Governments, by and large, are led by, in terms of power structures, people with a policy background. Now, you can talk about that all day, good, bad, and indifferent. But when that becomes a monoculture, when everyone's a policy person, and policy is just an, often another word for strategy, then that means that people who are in delivery um, modes don't often get a look in. And then people write very nice policies or strategies and then throw them over a wall and say, here, get on with that. And then, of course, the things are undeliverable. We were all about delivery and we listened to users of services all the time. In fact, we were far more focused on the users of services than we were on the dynamic and the internal politics and power structures of government. All big institutions start to start to look like the power and communication structures they have. That's Conway's law. UK government is we invented the whole Whitehall model, which um, puts this power structure in place. And I think that our secret was that we were essentially run by and given freedom to deliver um, without having to play the policy game. How, how did how did you do that? I mean, that sounds like incredible or impossible. I'm, I'm like considering the structures. How were you guys able to create that space by delivering? I mean, when I was in, I came in in May 2011, after a period of sort of being half in and working with the team. And I went to see the minister before the summer recess. And, you know, I suspect people are expecting a, a long set of policy recommendations that then can be critiqued and recommend, you know, and then other departments can say, well, we don't really agree with this or that. And I was saying, well, we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to get on and deliver things. And the speed of delivery the quality of delivery and the fact that we worked in the open meant that our the way we were doing it was sort of unarguable we were making better services for less money for happier users there isn't a politician in the world that doesn't like that and users were reacting positively to such a degree that the essentially the internal opposition didn't go away by any means, but were somewhat muted. And we had a an interesting response. About a third of people in the central government went, this is great, this is a new thing, it's how it should be, let's get on with it. About a third of people were waiting to see which way the wind blew politically. And about a third of people who essentially, I think, had tied themselves into power structures that, you know, I don't get promoted if we don't let out a big contract or whatever it is. Those people proved to be uh, incredibly stubborn and and um, and difficult. Um, and that's, that's the way of the world. But I've, you know, I've, undertaken digital reforms in six industries in 15 countries i sort of know the landscape government's no different in some regards than any other interest any other any other industry that has a dominant ruling class should we say 
One of the things that I think has, was most impressive with gov.uk, I mean, you have you delivered a lot of results, obviously, but really early you created and shared y- your own design principles. That's right. You, you put them online um, and for, for a public service, it was really unusual. I would probably say for as design principles for almost any business, they're like spot on. Yes. And, and they include, you know, one, start with user needs, two, do less, three, design with data, four, do the hard work to make it simple, five, iterate, then iterate again, six, this is for everyone, seven, understand context, eight, build digital services, not websites, nine, be consistent, not uniform, 10, make things open, it makes things better. I love design principles, Mike. I think these are just amazing design principles. They're incredibly inspiring. And yet we also see sometimes it's very hard for people who are actually doing the work to follow this. But it seems like you got your five to 600 people to actually do this. How did you do that? How did you make these? And how did you get people to follow them? Well, there's two questions there. The making of them, you know, wasn't down to me. You won't be surprised to hear that was from the team. We had some very talented people who were very good. People like Ben Terrett, Russell Davis, Ema Coleman, Tom Lewis-Moore, others who were very good at articulating the ways that we were working. Some of these ways of working were just second nature to people from the internet era anyway. So, but encapsulating them so lucidly, uh, you know, was a work of genius and certainly not my genius. The I think the hard yards came, as you say, in not just writing them down and putting them on the wall, but turning them into things that people can follow. And that meant actually taking principles all the way down to operations. So let me explain. We started with a bunch of principles. And then if you click on the principle, it might give you a paragraph about what that means more. But then people go, okay, well, that's still a little bit of a ambition or even rhetoric. But we could then turn that into things like a service manual that shows you how to do it. Quite literally says, well, if you want to know more, click here. And there would be technology manuals, and they'd be owned and shared and written by communities of practice who would be all over the the public sector. So as a person in Swansea in motoring and another person in uh, tax in, you know, the other end of the country in Newcastle were working on designs of services they could interact using these assets and actually also add to them and develop them so we became they those assets became the very best of a distributed system rather than a force of control across that system Mm. what to do and i think that was the genius of the team is that they use the internet and, and web services to actually encapsulate the principles in a series of actionable service oriented assets like service manual that then led to a service standard. So you could hold yourself up to the standard. The standard was backed up by a set of financial controls where people mm. wouldn't release money. So these were had very hard edges. It got to the point where the, the even some of the principles would work all the way down to performance reviews. You know, have you followed the principles? And so what became a, a bunch of very ambitious, lucid, but incredibly top-level principles work their way into the practicalities of of millions of public servants and their daily lives, even, frankly, if some of them didn't know it, um, particularly frontline services, so uh, uh, people working on frontline services. And I think that was the genius, not just the, the writing of them, but the cascading of them through a bureaucratic system. And that was that was something I look back proudly on. 
I mean, I think that's an incredibly unusual story to, to not just, you know, write the principles and describe them, but actually to back them up, do the hard work to, to put measures behind them that people can react to. It seems like most design principles stop at that top line. Well, most policy does. I mean, if you think about it from what I said earlier, it would be tremendously hypocritical if we had just written some principles and said, there, look, there you go, follow the genius of our principles. Actually, what we had to do is, is, is to take people on that journey all the way through the, their operation and daily lives. If I equate writing principles to writing policy, far too much policy is written with good intent, of course, and yet it stops short of anything that is based on a deeper understanding of delivery. Mm. And that's that's not much use. Now, the policy intent, you know, you might want a, a, a bigger benefit for this or a, a different change in education over here or whatever it might be. No one's doubting the policy intent, right? And we vote on these things and we have ministers. It's just that writing a policy and delivering the outcomes that are intended in that policy you can't just do one of them and then chuck it over the fence to someone else. And we felt the same with principles. Writing the principles and putting them on the wall, great. Give people the assets and give people the ability to participate in the development of those principles. Now, I've been a long time out of government, and I still see in the UK government we have service standards and people do on undertaking assessments and so on. I don't know how well or badly each assessment's going, of course, but we've left a legacy that combines principles and delivery. That's why we talk about the strategy being delivery. One of the problems I look at in the, understandably in the, the fast follower world of government, digital governments is that there are lots of principles, frankly, a lot of them the same or similar, but they're just principles. And yeah. it begs the question, what changes? And mm. um, having principles is all very well, um, acting on them and sometimes having to pay the price of delivering them, that's that's when it gets real. I don't think most organizations and especially public organizations have made that leap between you know the the principles and the things behind it. I, I, I don't I, I think one of the reasons we don't see that is they are still in this policy mode of writing it. And I wonder, you know, what type of training or education or connection they would need to fill those out into meaningful to make them meaningful and actionable well i mean there's two again there's two questions there if you're asking the question why do people who have been trained and essentially be somewhat entitled in the professional development to write policy how do you train them and make them into to be more thoughtful about delivery you know, that's fair enough. You can do some of that. A more fundamental question is, why is government run by those people in the first place? Like, why are we not? That's a, that's a scary question, Mike. Ministers come to power and are voted into power. Politicians, whether they be city mayors and so on, and they are bedeviled by the problem of delivery. They have the yeah. they stood on a mandate. They want to get stuff done. Whether you and I agree with them or not, that's their job. And yet they come in and say, I want to get this thing done. And the people say, well, I'll write a policy paper for you. And it's great. You need some of that. You need some intent. But more often, you need a delivery mechanism. And I think that the biggest challenge to our governments, digital represents, by the way, a, a window of modernization, if you like. It's the, the Overton window, uh, which is for mm. period digital offers, offers a sense of 
reform from within. And if it's not taken, then it's perfectly reasonable that reform from without will happen. It's, I don't think it's tenable to turn around after 25 years of the web and say to ministers, oh, we're not very good at websites, despite the fact that that's how everybody in the country <laughs> wants to use your services. You know, it's simply not acceptable anymore. Yeah. And so we're now entering a different territory where, you know, I, I have a, I'm not sure you've seen have a position paper about the four eras of digital government. We're now entering a position where, again, we're going to another technology wave, this one that is going to affect government services and policy delivery. And only some governments are in a, are in a position to take advantage of that. So, Mike, tell us a little bit more about these four stages. And well, where are we right now? <laughs> depends where you are. In. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'm taking the broadest of brushes, okay? So, yep. If we accept roughly that widespread demand and necessity for digitizing public services, and by that I don't mean automation or technology, we've had that for decades, I mean great digital services, that roughly equates to the late 2000s when mobile phones became the you know uh, m m mainstream. Of course, we've had the web before that, and of course governments have done some stuff. We talk about Estonia. I'm talking now broadly across the board. So the first wave was getting basic digital services. Some countries, many countries are still there. And that means sorting out your websites, making sure that the content is consistent, making sure people can find information. By and large, where possible, making sure that the transaction can be completed online. Hmm. It's a lot of cleaning house. And in the UK, that was largely the work of GDS. And we set a model for other countries to do that in the first phase. Now, that's the first phase. I would, I would argue roughly that goes from, let's pick dates, sort of 2010 to 2016, 17. But as I say, you know, you some people maybe still be in that phase. The next phase happened, I think, quite quickly. And two, phase, two distinct phases happen. The first um, phase, as we ran into 29, um, sort of late, late 18, 19, was the sort of crisis response. And I don't just mean COVID, although COVID was a big one. I mean the financial crisis as well. So there's, there's like a, a bunch of things happened that required immediate digital provision by mm. them. That could be things like running the like run on the banks and financial responses that are digitized. And then of course we had COVID. And so suddenly digital response went from being a, a sort of hygiene factor, fix your websites, to a financial imperative to a mission of life and death in about three years. Now, you know, quite simply, you look at COVID, there is an almost straight line correlation between government digital responses. Those governments that had multidisciplinary teams who could respond quickly with agile technology and information and, and services have better rates of uh, COVID response than those countries who didn't. Pretty simple. Yep. So, you, so it's gone from hygiene, phase one, to fix websites, to crisis response. And then I think we've gone to a third a third uh, era. And that era really is where governments, you know, governments aren't stupid. They're staffed by very bright people who look around and have got a social conscience and go, hey, we got to take this stuff more seriously. And then what they've done is, 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 is put in money. And what we've seen really since COVID is governments around the world start putting in substantial funds to digitization. And now that could be in sort of 
econ- the, the, the source of that money could come from different places. In, in Australia, it's a New South Wales Digital Restart Fund, $3 billion. In Colombia, it's a big sort of national government move. In America, with Biden, it's a sort of reinsertion of democratic forces after the Trump years, plus the economic pickup of the IRA Act. Um, and in some countries, it can still be the response to like learning the lessons of COVID. But essentially, money's followed. The next phase has followed, and I'm delighted to see it, which is the next logical step, is governments, as well as putting money in, need different forms of leaders. And what we're seeing is people running large parts of government who, frankly, previously would not have had a go. So Mm -hmm. Robin Carnahan in the US, you know, digital native to the core, runs now the GSA. She's responsible for every federal building in, in in, in the USA. You know, at the other end of of that uh, 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 element, you, you see in sort of Priakos Kyriakos, who's the Greek minister, who I think seven eight years ago I was teaching him in a Harvard course. He's now digitised the entire machinery of state of Greece. It's a phenomenal achievement, and you're seeing lead digital leadership. So it's going hygiene, crisis response, finance, leadership, and I think we're about to shortly go into the next wave, which is rights and technological change. Mm-hmm. Now, the point about these waves is we live in an internet era. The future increasingly comes at you more quickly. And if you're still in the business of sorting out your websites or having an argument about which ministry or which department should write these piece of words, you really are wasted the last decade. Like you've got to get on with it. And what governments around the world have realized is that their own internal structures and often their own internal ways of working are getting in the way of good digital responses. And that is becoming, after COVID and finance, that's becoming a political imperative. It used to be an irritant that like the digital stuff didn't work, but frankly, a lot of middle-class people could afford intermediaries. The tax system website might be terrible, but I'll get my accountant to do it. That's no longer the case because everyone's using these things. And if they don't work, politicians find out about it very quickly and they sometimes find out about it at the ballot box so mm. that's where we are right now the future is getting more interesting and it's coming at us more quickly well you know i, I that's really interesting i will have to say the swedish tech's uh digital platform of course since it's the most important platform in the country is amazing it's like it's the most uh, friction-free thing i've ever i've almost ever experienced but you're also kind of getting at Mike, and I'm kind of wondering about this. I mean, you did this in Britain. We see the U.S. moving toward this. You mentioned Greece. This idea of centralizing the talent and the focus in in one place in government rather than spreading it around. Yeah. Would you say that's a was is that a is that a must have to is that a necessity to make all this happen? Yes and no. If you don't have a central core with a vision of who can speak for the whole of government, as DDS did. And when I say that, that was central national government. We'd have a local mandate. It all depends on population size, to be honest. But the smaller your population, the more important it is to have a central team. Let's start Mm. with small countries. Estonia, you know, the great Estonian story about rebuilding the country using technology when the Russians pulled out. Sweden, 10 million people, great, fantastic tax system. But you've got a relatively homogeneous country. You've got a relatively benign politics in terms of this stuff. And you've got high skills levels. 
I would argue that the UK was unusual in that it's at the tip of the size of country where you can do a national play. And that's because of our of the characteristics of our national politics. We are an insanely national um, centralised country, but yet with very floppy levers in that centre. So it was possible to put a digital unit there that could could uh, have cut through only if you have political leadership for a period, which proved to be the case. Once you get into bigger countries, I'm talking about America, uh, Brazil, India and so on. I mean, the Indian story is phenomenal. You either have to have absolutely rigid top-down control, as you've seen with Adahar in India, or you have to have a degree of standards and principles that work across mm. states and federal, which you've not really seen so much in the US, but you have seen with the work, great work of USDS, Code for America and others. So I would argue that a central team is a, a necessity until you get to a, essentially a population size of a Dunbar moment when you're better off just splitting them up. Now, that's the sh- that's the short to medium term answer. The long term answer to get away from a government that's running terribly, eh, eh, that's essentially a power structure for one type of person, a policy person, and I, some of my best friends are policy people, <laughs> is that you want the in the long term, you want the digital skills all over the place. Now, right. I spent the last part of my two years in government setting up digital units all over the United Kingdom's public system. Some of them have done great stuff. And, and the, credit, the credit should go to those teams, individuals and departments, not to me or GDS, to the thing they've become. I would argue in the UK that our universal credit, the response, you know, the benefit system withstood a massive change in COVID. The tax system did. That's down to the, you know those departments. Getting those departments to work this way was the devil's own job. But once we managed it, they did take the ball and run with it. So your answer isn't a binary yes or no, but I do think without a central core that establishes what good looks like and also has powers of at least powers of veto to stop other departments doing things, then I think you'll always have trouble. I was talking to one country recently, and you know, very talented digital team spending all their time trying to persuade other bits of government to not launch the 20th app that the government's launched because you're just confusing people. Yeah. So tell us a little bit how your time at GDS wound down and why what what happened there. And and tell us a little bit how did your story continue after that? Well. Uh, GDS was, I mean, it's still going now. It's gone through different iterations. My time was to get it up, get it running. We delivered the reforms. We delivered the money, Gov UK, And then we delivered 20, we started a program in 2013 to 15 of complete transformation of 15 public services. And that's where we essentially handed the baton to some of the departments and ministries. We set off with a then next strategy of government as a platform. So notify, verify, pay, which is still going now, which is to actually create platform services for ours and other governments to use. At that point, uh, given the change of government and given that I was pretty much exhausted, uh, I felt it was my time to hand that over to a more managerial regime, which I did. And a bunch of us started a company called Public Digital. And Public Digital exists. We, you know, we, we had been focused on the, on the centre of the centre of government, and we recognised something quite simple, which is, that public outcomes are not just the purview of central public departments. So a public outcome can equally belong to a museum or a healthcare mm-hmm. provider or a, uh, in the case of COVID, in the case of, you know, uh, a football brand like the Premier League. You know, getting people back into the ground safely was a um, an act of public policy, health policy rather than a 
a sports issue. So we set up Public Digital to help put what we call public interest institutions. That means institutions, they could be private, public, third sector, they could be philanthropic, but that have got at their heart a public mission. And we've been having a great old time. We've been working in 40-odd countries. We have 130 people around the world working this week on fascinating projects like helping the sickle cell community in the UK, which is a, uh, a an awful disease, and helping that community with the digital response, setting up digital units in in Africa, working with Gates and Rockefeller and the UNDP to, to work in many countries to digitize core services, also helping big institutions like the IMF and the World Bank address the issues of financing digital. And we advise development banks and so on. So we're, and I spent much of last week on the President Macron's uh, tech thinkers team to help him and the, and his team draft a response to the G7 and the emerging opportunity and threat of artificial intelligence. So we do a lot of varied things, but at the heart of it is the public interest of very large institutions. How fun. It sounds like you're having a blast. Having a whale of a time. <laughs> very much. So what's, what would you say from your time in the GDS transferred to this uh, opportunity for you to share this knowledge and, and experience with other governments around the world? What are kind of the key pieces that you've taken from GDS that you're able to help others with? Well, um, just some observations that are not in principles. I mean, as you very kindly pointed out, a lot of those principles travel well. First thing, a relatively small number of focused digital people with multidisciplinary skills. You can't do anything with a monoculture. So product, service design, interaction design, policy, finance, HR. A small number of people can affect state-level digital transformation for services and deliver policy at lightning speed. A same proxy, I think it was said back about, you know, was it at um was it WhatsApp or Instagram that had like 13 people and was worth a billion dollars? It's it's a right. poor, it's a poor analogy, but essentially the same principle applies. So wherever we talk to talk to, to institutions we firstly say, well, we haven't got you know vast amounts of people to do this. We say we don't need them. You need a small number, but you need to create the conditions for those people to do great things. That never changes. Second thing that never changes is institutions are full of people with digital skills that are not deployed properly because the working cultures and the institution design mitigates against them. Mm. All right, that's the thing. So yep. changing the ways of working, much as anything. Um, the third thing that, that sort of never changes is institutions, by and large, after they become a certain size, the internal language and logic dominates the, the needs of the external users. You know, go and join a police force or an army, wherever. It's, just, it's the same the world over. There's a very understandable logic to that. People want to get promoted. They want to get the budget for next year. The internal stuff dominates. What we do all the time is literally bring organizations to understand the effect they're having on the users and the outcomes for which they say that most people go to work every day and want to do that. I want, you know, I want better people to use better services. Showing them those services and making them use them, bring them close to home is usually quite a, a difficult task. And we help them do that. 
you know, the, the example of government is a good one. Most, an awful lot of people who are in charge of large parts of government never use the services that the government provides. Yeah. Well, this, the, the central challenge of any designer and innovator, right, of Correct. bringing people close to their, their, their people, their users, their constituents, their citizens. Sure. I the mean, gap. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, you, you, you will be familiar with this. Which that that's why we put design thinking at the heart of GDS and the response, and we do that now in public digital. You know, we try to design outcomes and design ways. We we actually we believe that many of the institutions we work with have got the capacity to do this stuff. They have to design a different way of working and talking to themselves to do it first. I I, I can't. I have to say, Mike, there. I love that so much, and it it. Uh, you had a quote from, I think it's one of your blogs or whatever, of, mm-hmm. uh, you said, if you want to make transformation happen and make it stick, you need to be radical in changing how your organization works, but incremental in changing what it delivers. Absolutely. And I just think that's, you've, you've hit that thing right on the head. Absolutely. I mean, I, like, I say this jokingly. Some people say to me, uh, uh, my friend Jen Polka, who set up the U.S. Digital Service, She'd often say with a tongue in cheek, oh, Mike, you know, you did a great job just doing that website. I was like, yeah, it took five and a half years. That's all we did, that website, you know? But actually, (laughs) governments had websites before. They were pretty terrible. But, you know, there's one argument to say, hey, you just did a website. And there's still some people in the UK government say those guys that, you know, they were designers. They designed a website without even (laughs) understanding that literally everything had to change to affect what was a very small but important change to the end user, which is your digital interface to government actually worked. And for once, government was saying to you, hey, we're the government, you can use it, rather than, hey, we're the government, you have to work out how we've organized ourselves. Now, that, you know, people talk about digital transformation as if, like, people are going to sort of almost change the form, you know, we go into banks or go into big institutions. Then they say, oh, this is not, you know, how are we going to go from being a, I don't know, a financial institution to something else? And we say, you're not. Like, that's not the game in town. You're not going to go from, like, a financial institution to, like, making furniture or being in retail, right? You're still going to do roughly what you do, but the ways in which you're going to do it need to fundamentally change. And in that change, you will find out and explore radically different ways you can get stuff done, which will allow you to do a wider and more interesting breadth of service. You know, I mean, I, I talked to someone recently, a financial institution, said, you know, the premise was, you know, how are you going to help us deliver credit cards more efficiently? Inefficiently? I said, firstly, by recognizing that nobody I know wants a credit card. <laughs> Right. So let's try to rethink the core point of your finance business. Now, that's a private institution, but public institutions are the same. So people, you know, will say in this day and age, they'll say, how do we digitize the driving license? Now, all governments do roughly the same stuff. Well, then in an age of autonomous vehicles, why on earth do you have one to driving license? Like, why do you want one? What do you want? Like, the data trails coming off vehicles are much more important now and then a piece of plastic with my detail on, I can get that elsewhere. So it's about digital gives us the ability to radically rethink how we're doing stuff. You're still going to have a form of driving credential, but it actually might be on four wheels and parked outside your house right. rather than a card in your wallet. It's Digital gives you the ability to think about what a future state of what you currently do could look like, not 
how do I do what I do now in a slightly more digital way? And the biggest thing we find is opening up people's eyes to think, actually, you know, if you want to digitize what you have now, you know, great, that's fine. But actually, it's it's going to be irrelevant in a few years time. But it's easier. It's an easier it's an easier ask. Right. You're kind of asking to do all that hard stuff of changing the way you operate and questioning these assumptions, which you need to do to survive in the future. But it's it's not anything most people look forward to doing. It feels like, oh, boy, that's a lot of change for me. We, we have been kidded, I think. We have been conned into believing that forward-looking change is somehow the uh, natural state, the natural owners of that are private institutions. Now, that, that is fundamentally mm. wrong. Because firstly, if you examine the if you examine the motivation of private institutions, they're mostly about maintaining or developing profit from existing uh, um, activity. And where R and D and innovation does happen, it's to extend the value of what they have now. And you see that with like rent seeking contracts and so on. What we have lost sight of is that public institutions and that forward looking view. It, it should be the purview of public institution to take the risk to look at what we're going to have. So let's take this country. The first thing I ever did to my team, and, th- and this is a story I've never told anyone. So here you go. Oh boy, exclusive. But the very first away day. So I had a very clear view that the UK government was going to be absolutely brilliant in public services. And we weren't going to make the best future motoring or transport thing or whatever it might be but we were going to put the foundations in that would allow that to happen. Right? That was our job. And the proxy for that in the in London was an engineer called William Basiljet. And William Basiljet faced a profound public policy in the 1860s, I think, which was the emergence of cholera and waterborne disease in a rapidly industrializing city that was growing hugely. And Basiljet invented the sewerage system. So ostensibly, he was there to help resolve the cholera crisis. So people were saying, well done, William Basil J, you're doing that. But what he did radically differently was think about how water literally works in a system, which is still powering this amazing city today. And I took the team, I said, look, what we're going to do is essentially, digitally, we're going to put the foundations in so that generations that follow us can, you know, we might have to, our our proxy for sort of sorting out cholera was like making government work well digitally. But that wasn't the end point. That was the beginning point. So government could go on and develop services that should have that future view. Now, in that country, in this country, I would say there's some elements, some pockets of government where that's happened. But we've lost our way politically with that. But those foundations are still there. And what I'd say to most governments is if those foundations are not there and a good sign of those foundations or well-functioning multidisciplinary teams, principles, standards, that sort of stuff. If they're not there, get them there quick, because that's the way that we envision and deliver the future. We need radically forward-thinking public institutions to deliver on the challenges we face, climate change, education, health. We're not going to do that by making driving licenses a bit better. We're going to do that by thinking about what the future looks like. And to do that, Governments in this period should already have substantial digital foundations. Look at Ukraine. It's at war. 
it's managed to become the model for um, a government by app. 100 plus applications on one app. Now, of course, the conditions there are barbaric and terrible, but as a as a crisis response, look what it's done. It's not difficult to get digital foundations in government to give us this view of public institutions. And that's, but for governments that are, that are putting their own short-term policy and departmental needs ahead of that, that's shameful. Well, Mike, that was an incredibly inspiring story. And, and the thing that strikes me is you're basically, you know, poking a hole in this mantra. We have to run government like, businesses and you're saying really it's the opposite the the government oper- is the opportunity to create the future not follow the private sector i've worked in businesses all over the world and there's a lot to be said private sector and, and public digital is a is, is a business in its own right uh i think that the false binary between public and private bedevils our thinking mm-hmm. frankly big institutions around the world are bureaucratic chaotic disorganized and suffer greatly from managerial culture. There's no reason at all why private and public businesses can't have entrepreneurial thinking, can deliver on missions. There's a reason why many private institutions don't do that, right? That's the shareholder culture and everything else. There's no reason at all other than belief that public institutions couldn't do that. I love I love that. So just to wind down this conversation, what advice would you give to Sweden? I assume Sweden hasn't hired you yet. Maybe they'll listen to the blog and say, public digital, you need to come over and help us. What would you say to the to the people working in government in Sweden, especially since they're mostly freaked out about this OECD government digital rankings? Um, what would I say? Sweden is not a country I've worked in in any detail. So I would be extremely, uh, I would say, I would bet my bottom dollar that there's a lot of great people working in government in Sweden, and I would give them a lot of encouragement. I wouldn't there are. Worry too much. I wouldn't worry too much about OECD rankings at this point. What I worry a lot about is what is the expectation that Sweden, for itself and for its near and far neighbours, can deliver outstanding services that will be we one thing we've not discussed here essentially the future trading mechanisms of business of countries around the world Mm. like where is sweden's place in the world if i'm estonia digitally i know where my place in the world i've offered id to millions of people outside of my borders to tie myself into a wider democratic system if i'm india i've created digital services to enfranchise 400 million people astonishing and to reduce finance to increase to get people into the formal banking system if i'm one of a number of countries in latin america like argentina and others i've essentially widened out the franchise using digital services like i've done that because that's in my need but it's also positioning myself as a uh, positioning the country as a more of an outward looking trading nation right and you're starting to see digital public goods and digital public infrastructure cross borders as it should do. My question to people in Sweden is be worried about where you're going to be in five years. Don't worry about the shape and color of next year's driving license or whatever it might be. By all means, be really, really good at that. That's really important that you're good at that. But think about where does Sweden and public services embody national and sovereign values? How do you get your values embodied in your public services? And how do the those services travel over borders? How do they go with you? And 
I think for countries of, I'm genuinely forgive my injuries, 10 million people in Sweden. Yep, exactly right. It's sufficiently big enough to be noticeable and sufficiently small enough to be agile and really innovative. And that's the challenge. If you've got 200 million people, 400 million people or more, if you're Brazil or India, it's big picture stuff, right? Getting hundreds of millions of people engaged. If you're Singapore and you're a city state and you've got an awful degree of autonomy, you can do some cutting edge stuff. If you're Sweden, you've got to think about how your digital government essentially embodies the value of your nation and how it travels around the world. And all I would say as the gentlest comment from a well-meaning observer is, I can't see any discernible pattern emerging from Sweden whatsoever, good or bad. Mm. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. A really great, fun, inspiring conversation. And I wish you the best of luck with public digital. Um, and I hope that you keep inspiring public servants and politicians around the world, and especially in the Scandinavian countries, I'm going to add at the end. Rich, thank you very much. And, you know, um, I have nothing but huge respect for everyone working in, in the in the noble business of public service provision. So let's, um, you know, keep going onwards. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to Innovation Explorers, Hello Futures podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. You've just heard a chat with Mike Bracken discussing digital transformation in the public sector. If you'd like to chat, either in real life or virtually, book a fika with me, as we say in Sweden, anytime. This is Rich Nadwarney from Hello Future. See you next time.